Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 131 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the very cool sound recordist. Hey. You're so cool. It sounds like you're wearing sunglasses. I am wearing sunglasses. Wow. Is this a bit? I don't know. Are you inside? Are you recording in a garden? <laughs> I'm wearing the opposite of sunglasses. I'm wearing a very comfortable sweater. He is Dylan's, uh, wearing a very cute like wool sweater. <laughs> he looks like a little sheep. I don't think I was prepared when we started this episode to hear how many cute things Dylan does, but <laughs> Bailey keeps us updated. Let's make a tally. Number one. <laughs> mm. Sweater. That's it. Yeah, that's it. End of list. Hi, everybody. How are you? Well. I, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> a lot of snow here. I'm recording from Maine this time. I hear you had some snow in L.A. as well. There was a blizzard warning in L.A., which is pretty hilarious. Um, we did get Whoa. snow on the mountains that you can see sort of when you're driving that are far away. Yeah. But more than that, <laughs> we got a lot of rain and Dylan and I lost power for like three days. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. That's not fun. It was very intense. It was freezing cold, 50 degrees. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, <laughs> it was pretty cold, though. You had a bunch of people's sympathy from the East Coast, and then you lost it immediately when you said 50 degrees. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but there were parts of it that were fun. At night, we'd like break out the candles and we did some silent reading. Oh, no. I guess we're going to have to read some books. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Um, reading in a different context. <laughs> and that was fun. Um, Dylan, you read a book called Booth. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, it's about the history of benches. No, uh, no, oh. it's uh, it actually was a good book called Booth, but it follows the John Wilkes Booth family. It's by Karen Joy Fowler, and it follows like the Booth family. You know, there's other Booths besides John Wilkes Booth, and it's well, funny. there's Edwin Booth, <laughs> yeah. famous actor who gets name checked all the time in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. Boom, boom, boom. Apparently, mm. they're very hot. Judius Booth, they were the hottest family in America. It's like the Hemsworths, what you said. I have yeah. heard this. Well, that's what they were saying. It's like, yeah. imagine if Liam Hemsworth killed the president. That's what the equivalent <laughs> would be today. And then went on the run and they chased him. Yeah. And they do have their own, like, Chris Hemsworth, uh, Liam Hemsworth, and then their other third Hemsworth brother. That is an actor, technically. What's the third Hemsworth's name? TBD. Rock. Don Donnie? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but it it is good. It, it's funny because they focus on like their early life is just so miserable and children dying left and right that I was about to give up. But then after 100 pages, it when it starts talking about like the acting career and like basically what the Hollywood scene was like in 1850s, that it gets really interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, like Hollywood pre-movies. So like what's the hot play, hot yeah. play star? Ooh, I bet if he's going to do Julius Caesar tonight. Uh, they're like all these like dry goods merchants who are like, I want to try my name in pictures. <laughs> and they're like, no, never make it. And by pictures, I mean those old timey photographs. You have to sit still for a long time. <laughs> they're woodcut daguerreotypes. <laughs> they're woodcut influencers. Um, <laughs> that one got me dealt. <laughs> <laughs> so we had fun reading, but it was an exhausting weekend because we spent most of it trying to convince our two year old that it was just a game. Yeah, like it's so fun. Oh, okay. It's so fun to have extra blankets and to. You know, take a bath with flashlights. We made it through. <laughs> How much snow is there, Andrew? We had, I don't know exactly what the final count was because it started melting pretty early. But I think um, we probably got about a foot yesterday and we had like a six inch storm and another like seven inch storm or like nine inch storm earlier the week. So we just had a lot. I don't think I've ever heard the term like six inch storm before. And oh. it just, yeah. That's like the way you, that's the way you describe it. 
Oh yeah. No, well, when you're mm. when you're from Maine, when there's snow all the time, you have to be like, oh, this one's not too bad. It's only <laughs> measurement of snow. Or it's like <laughs> it's snowing, but it's not sticking. Uh, I didn't have any shame. I was wondering if this was all lead up to you saying, and I had nine books of shame, but we don't need to talk about it. Uh, I was going to say that I don't have any shame. I want to hear about whether you guys have shame, but I just have to share my new workaround for shame. Uh, okay. Is- yeah. <laughs> do you want to know our our results first, or do you want to go to your workaround like a little cheater? I'll I'll just say my workaround really quick, which okay. is that you know <laughs> I've been coping, um, you know, with life and everything by taking out books from the library for my daughter, and it's okay. a normal thing. And I've every day spend like every week spend like an hour at the library picking them out without her there. So I'm the weirdo. And people have asked mm. me several times, "Are you a teacher?" And I said, no, I'm just a mom. <laughs> um, yeah, you get that far off look in your eyes. You're like, I used to be. <laughs> but each person in Los Angeles who has a library card can check out 30 children's books. So if I take my library card and Maggie's and Dylan's, I get oh, 90 no. books. So wait, we, right now we have no. 90 books up from the library. Wait, yeah, wait a minute. Hold on. I was going to say, like, we got a lot more than 30. So oh. I didn't realize it was this extreme, Bailey. Yeah. When you started this story, I was like, that's a harmless and sweet activity. And then they 90 books. You're like, oh, that's no good. And our daughter has like responded to like, I feel like I'm bad influence because now she's insisting she will say, mama, me read now. I just I got to say, in case our listeners are concerned, um, Maggie does have a lot of books already (laughs) that are not from the library, (laughs) perhaps more than most children. These are new ones. Perhaps more than most schools. <laughs> yeah, there can't be there can't be ninety quality books at a time that you want to rent. You just you got to be scraping the bottom of the barrel with, with some of them, right? Are you no, like, it's oh, m- this one's just in here to make it to ninety. Not at all. It's more like I get ninety every week. So I've been going to different libraries every what? time to switch it up and having different disguises. <laughs> some places Wait, have so- different Olivia the Pig books. I have to go to different libraries to see which ones they have. Wait, but so how is this a workaround oh, for your shame? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's it's it sounds like a This sounds like a new distinct brand of shame. <laughs> I don't think fulfilling... you should be proud of this. I just want to be clear. <laughs> it's fulfilling the need to acquire new books without spending money. So a workaround. Nailed it. Mm. All right. Well, I don't have any shame. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> well, Andrew, do you have any pride to report, though? I feel like you've been reading up a storm. I'm absolutely crushing it. I cannot be stopped. I am Ooh. a force of nature. Basically, if if reading was an Olympic sport, I would be the dream team in Barcelona, dunking and dunking <laughs> and dunking. Um, wow. What a specific reference that Bailey will not like. Yeah, she hates basketball, <laughs> to be clear. I don't respond to <laughs> basketball. Yeah, I've read 19 books so far this year. That's, uh, by 19? Goodreads count, 12 Whoa. books ahead of my schedule. And I'm not going to stop. I will not be tamed. I'm a fire. <laughs> you will not be the one to put me out. Andrew, are you going to be Icarus in the in the way that, like, I think I've done this before and regretted it, where you're kicking so much butt in, like, the first months of the year that you up your reading goal for mm. the year? Because at some point, you know, you're, what, 12 books ahead of schedule? Surely you could afford to just inch that up a little bit. I'm going to absolutely crush my reading goal, and then I will look <laughs> back enough. on it having read, whatever, 83 books. At my paltry 42 and be like, I look upon you and see the man I once was. And that man Mm. is but a shadow compared to the man I am now. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Inspirational. That was very inspirational to inspire, you know, us 
you know, plebes that only are on track for our Goodread School. Number one, can you share like some of your favorites? And number two, can you give us some hints? Like you said that you had s- some method for getting through all these books fast. Um, oh, so yes. Well, first of all, I've, I've just really delved into the backlog of the uh, Audible account that we all we all have access to. <laughs> um, so that's been one thing. So like we've talked about before, I always have a, an audio book going and a physical book going. And also really the only um, New Year's resolution I've done is to read a chapter of a physical book a day. And what will end up happening with Ooh, that that'll is, help. yeah, you'll read one and you'll be like, I could read another one. And then you just get through your physical books faster. The only yeah. other thing I've done is I've started reading other people's books on the podcast because I've had time and usually mm. access having a good time with that doesn't also hurt that uh, the book I had for this week's podcast was 140 pages and then I had all this other and I had four weeks to do it so I had a lot of time for other stuff nice um, Andrew I'd say I'm as I'm precisely as excited about this development in your life as I am fearful and worried about the development in Bailey's life so <laughs> it good you know that you know the meme of the dog surrounded by fire that's like Everything is yeah. fine. It's me just surrounded by stacks of picture books. <laughs> <laughs> Children's books. Oh, God. <laughs> so uh, speaking of scaling the heights of uh, of things and achieving things, Andrew, did you read a book uh, having to do with a famous mountain this, this month, this episode? Objection leading. <laughs> leading the witness. Um, <laughs> I did. I read The Snows of Kilimanjaro and Other Stories by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Six-word mm, story, snow, snow. Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> All right, so this is our third time dealing with the papa himself, Ernest Hemingway. We've had, I reviewed mm. um, The Old Man in the Sea a while back, and Bailey, I think that her first official book for the podcast was Movable Feast. That's is that correct. right? Yeah. So yes, episode yes. two of the podcast. So we're digging deep mm-hmm. back, but we were still getting our sea legs. Like we were catching yeah. a, a great bass or hunting a mm. noble beast. <laughs> Our first game, I think, was pretty impromptu in that episode, too. It's like, oh, let's make it a game. No, there's no game in that episode. Our first (gasps) game comes in episode two, I think. I don't know. Guys, we've grown so much. We Um, have. I know. So... So how's the how's the papa doing? How did it Kilimanjaro go? <laughs> Kilimanjaro like this. So here's it's hard. It, this is a book of short stories, which I'm growing more and more wary of covering on the podcast because every time I finish them, I'm yeah. just like, how do you talk about this? <laughs> but yep. uh, so I didn't have like a traditional logline, but enjoy this introductory paragraph. A collection of short tales from one of the canon's broiest and most popular writers. The Snows of Kilimanjaro by <laughs> Ernest Hemingway doesn't disappoint in that it is incredibly, incredibly broy. It has a little bit of each of Hemingway's favorite things, boxing, war, Nick Adams, big game hunting, to name just a few. It also contains a core theme of loneliness in one's own mind and the inherent pain of attempting to connect when you're stuck as yourself. So that's just sort of a uh, intro to it. You get you get a lot of the Hemingway stalwarts. There's a whole story about hunting big game in, in Africa, a whole story about a boxer's last fight. You know, basically, if... You asked one of those AI things to generate a list of topics for, for Ernest Hemingway to write, you'd probably get this book. Um, mm-hmm. There are 10 stories in it, each of which they range from about like two pages to 30 plus. Um, they're mostly very digestible in like the in like the 10 to 15 range. Um, some of these you probably read in your high school English course uh, as like an example. Clean, well-lighted place. I know we read that in high school. I'm not sure if that happened to any of y'all. That sounds very familiar. I think I read it too. Yeah, that and I think A Day's Wait. Which one is the Big Game Hunters one? Because that also sounds Yeah, the, is that Death in the Afternoon? 
Uh, no, this one is called The Short Happy Life of Francis Maycomer. Hmm. That's not quite as strong as some of the other ones, so maybe that one, <laughs> maybe the other big game hunting ones have risen to the top. I have um, to, sorry, I have to go ask 2006 Bailey and maybe she'll know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anywho, uh, let's talk a little bit about orcs and elves then. So the Ooh. central theme, I'm going to start with some elves, is really powerful. The book is full of stories of people trying to like make their own way in the world, but all sort of stuck with, with no matter what they do, they're always sort of alone in their own mind, which can be a, a not great place, or you're sort of stuck in your past, things like that. The classic of literature courses, like I already mentioned, Clean Well Lighted Place, is like probably the best example of that, and probably my favorite story in the book, which is just about a man who doesn't want to leave a bar at the end of the night because he has to go home, and then a waiter who feels the same, and the other waiter just being like, what? I, th- I want to go home to my family. The other one's like, yeah, but then you have to be alone in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so that's a particularly strong story. Some of the other ones that stood out were A Day's Wait, which is like a pretty dark story about a kid becoming sick, but with a little twist and it's very short. It's not as dark as maybe it sounds. Um, Fathers and Sons is like a sort of spanning of three generations, a man thinking back to his father while he's like driving in a car with his son. And that's one of the Nick Adams stories, which I don't know a lot about, but he uses a protagonist called Nick Adams a lot. I don't think he ever used him in a novel, but uses him in a lot of short stories. And I think there's three in this book where he does that. Mm. So it's um, part of like the Hemingway cinematic universe. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nick Adams. I know he's the Green Lantern, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about the Paris Initiative. (laughs) And then there's also a story called The Gambler, The Nun, and The Radio, which is fun, mostly because it has the only female character in it that isn't just being a tool for the story, who's just a nun who really likes football. I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. She like refuses to watch it because she needs to pray for Notre Dame because <laughs> Notre Dame's <laughs> our, our mother. Um, <laughs> anywho, that, so that was, that's, a, that's a fun story. Uh, and then another one that's pretty good is the other Nick Adams story, which is called A Way You'll Never Be. Definitely sort of digs down into sort of shell shock and post-traumatic stress disorder of war. Again, Hemingway bread, Hemingway butter. Um, <laughs> uh, but those are sort of the standout stories in the book. Um, I never buy Hemingway butter anymore because there's too much cigar ash in it. Yeah. <laughs> it always just has a paw print of a six toe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess my overall sort of elf of that is I, I do like Hemingway's writing. It's fun to visit it. His writing is strong. However, I just I don't know that I would recommend this one to people starting out with Hemingway. And mm. I have some specific reasons for it. Uh, so let's talk orcs. The Urukai. Orcs. Hemingway orcs. Hemingway orcs. Bearded orcs. Drove an ambulance on the Black Mountain. Um, <laughs> any Hizzleby. It just, this one, we read a lot of things that we have to take into context that it was written in a different time. Things won't always age well. This one in particular, he like really luxuriates in using slurs in a way that just never really seemed necessary or even really to be telling the story of, like to be improving the story. Yeah. So that's not great. The ones you think you're thinking of and ones that... You forgot you knew. I don't want to be putting a 2023 lens on a book that was written. I'm not sure when this was written uh, exactly, but definitely in a different time. But it just, it none of it felt like it was improving the stories. I alluded to this other reason, which is just that he really just seems to 
dislike women in this book. And that is not always <laughs> true of his books. I he has he has solid female characters in some of his other books. It's obviously not his strength. It's obviously not something he's like known for, but it's usually better than this. <laughs> <laughs> in particular, uh the title story, Snows of Kilimanjaro, the closing story, The sh- Short Happy Life of Francis Makomer, just have characters that are just like overwhelmingly just like, I hate men because why wouldn't I? Because I'm pretty. <laughs> just like, okay, buddy. I mean, Let's I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, that does capture how I feel. Yeah. And, and um, yeah. And then there's other stories where they're kind of just used for sexual purposes and don't really seem to have much of a purpose other than that. And so, again, just not like dope. Undope. Yeah, so this review is sort of kind of all over the place and a little funky, but it's just like, I wouldn't recommend this being the book you start Hemingway with, even though it is like so classic in the subject matter. I feel like there are better ways to start. I would always recommend Farewell to Arms first, I think, as my go-to for him. Old Man in the Sea, I didn't have any of these issues with. I thought that was a beautiful story. You know, if you really are into Hemingway, I think it's like a a good thing to have read. But, you know, I'm not going to be breaking down any doors to read this again. I am going to round up to three stars on this. It's very much a two and a half, Mm. but I just don't want to call it a two. It's just not quite a two because there are good stories in it. And it's hard to judge a story collection when some Mm -hmm. you really like and some are just like, eh. Because there are some stories that I would rate four to maybe even five stars. And then some that are like, that's a one, baby. So (laughs) I think it's a fair three overall. You said there was one short story in there that was two pages long. How good was that one? That one's good. That one's uh, a day's wait. Okay. Which is, should, can I spoil the story? Sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. A two, it's a two-page story where a kid is sick. The kid thinks he's going to die. And it's and then he just like, it's really morose. And it's like, what time do you think I'll die, father? And the dad's like, you're not going to die. What are you talking about? No, he said my temperature was 102 <laughs> degrees. You, d- you die at this temperature. And it's because the kid only knows Celsius and thinks he's like <laughs> 70 degrees hotter than he should be. <laughs> what? And it's all about this like painful days wait where this kid is like i'm definitely gonna die no. <laughs> and then the kid dad's just like no you're not you idiot <laughs> it's one of those famous Ernest hemingway farces it kind of is and like maybe i'm misreading it maybe the kid dies but i thought it was funny i don't think i am <laughs> i don't think so so do you think andrew you'll keep the book on your shelf like is it worth having in your home yeah i think it is i think to visit the stories i liked in it if i wanted to it's also quite an old copy so there's a little bit of like tryst in it being sort of an artifact to to a certain extent but yeah no I, I like the stories i like in it enough to keep it around how, how does that book smell does it smell good it doesn't smell bad it, it's not like one of those old books that like has mildewed okay. um <laughs> it has a nice old book smell mm, you can let's get some asmr here mm, yeah i can smell mm. the marlboros uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay well thank you andrew that sounds you know kind of what i expected i have to say like some good some bad but you know Always good to read more Hemingway. Toby, do you have any facts mm-hmm. on uh, Big Papa Hemingway? <laughs> I love that accusation. Of, Toby. It's always yeah, good geez. to read more Hemingway, Toby. That's how I heard Toby. it. Toby. Uh, uh, <laughs> I put down my copy of The Old Man on the Sea right now. Yeah, so here we are back with Papa Hemingway for the third time. It's worth saying that the last time Andrew reviewed one, which is The Old Man in the Sea. Bailey was reviewing the modern masterpiece, Red Wall. So that's a good episode. You should check that out. 
Ooh, ooh, two giants of literature. <laughs> I know. So, because we've covered him quite a lot before, I'm going to give you a quick little biography. Not comprehensive. Ernest Miller Hemingway was an American novelist, short story writer, and a journalist. His economical and understated style, which included the iceberg theory... And now I'm going to cut away to describe the iceberg theory. The iceberg theory, or theory of omission, is a writing technique coined by American writer Ernest Hemingway. As a young journalist, Hemingway had to focus his newspaper reports on immediate events with very little context or interpretation. When he became a writer of short stories, he maintained this minimalistic style, focusing on surface elements without explicitly discussing underlying themes. Hemingway believed the deeper meaning of the story should not be evident on the surface, but should shine through implicitly. I mean, that's part of the theory, but there's a lot more behind it, right, Toby? (laughs) (laughs) Dylan, you're really crushing it today. Anyway, here we go. Um, So the iceberg theory had a strong influence on 20th century fiction, uh, while his adventurous lifestyle and public image brought him admiration from later generations. Hemingway produced most of his work between the mid-1920s and the mid-1950s, and he was awarded the 1954 Nobel Prize in Literature. He's published seven novels, six short story collections, and two nonfiction works. Three of his novels, four short story collections, and three nonfiction works were published posthumously. And basically, he's a giant of classic American literature. If this is the first you're hearing about him, he's pretty good. <laughs> so that's that's all the bi- biography I have. I'm going to do some fun facts here from a Mental Floss article that I found. Yeah. Cool. Ernest Hemingway was allegedly a KGB spy. What? When Colliers sent the legendary war correspondent Martha Gellhorn to China for a story in 1941, Hemingway, who was her husband, accompanied her and filed dispatches uh, for PM. Documentation from the Soviet Union revealed in a 2009 book shows that Hemingway was possibly recruited as a willing clandestine source just prior to the trip and was given the code name Argo. The documents also show that he didn't deliver any useful information, wasn't trained for espionage, and only stayed on their list of active sources until the end of the decade. So, not a particularly powerful or resourceful spy or one that did that did anything. There there was Russian leaks later that they put famous people on their KGB payroll They when mm-hmm. they had documents released. So that way people would think that they were KGB yeah. agents. But it's like, no, no, we just, they like stole people's documents and then said, oh yeah, they gave us all this information. Mm. Okay. And those KGB are kind of sneaky. <laughs> Here's another fun fact that is maybe, I think it's still PG rated, um, but here we go. Ernest Hemingway once checked out F. Scott Fitzgerald's penis in a Paris men's room. Hemingway uh, talked about his life in a 1964 memoir, A Movable Feast. Heard of it. And one of the episodes in there is he claimed he had a memorable encounter with F. Scott Fitzgerald. The great Gatsby author shared that his wife, Zelda, had mocked his manhood, uh, claiming that he wouldn't be able to satisfy a lover. Hemingway offered to investigate the matter and render a verdict. He took Fitzgerald to the bathroom at Michaud's, a popular restaurant in Paris, and examined him. Ultimately, he assured Fitzgerald that his physical endowment was of a totally normal size and suggested that he check out some nude statues of the Louvre for confirmation. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a pre-internet yeah. situation. I have no memory of that in the book, but... I think you had an edited version, didn't you? <laughs> you, you had the F. Scott Fitzgerald edited version. <laughs> so this last little bit is going to be an excerpt from the article, The Art of the Short Story, uh, written by Hemingway and published in the Paris Review in March of 1959. Um, so this is at the height of his fame. This is advice, his advice on writing short stories, in part. Gertrude Stein, who was sometimes very wise, said to me on one of her wise days,
ways, remember, Hemingway, that remarks are not literature. The following remarks are not intended to be, nor do they pretend to be literature. They are meant to be instructive, irritating, and informative. No writer should be asked to write solemnly about what he has written. Truthfully, yes, solemnly, no. Shall we begin in the form of a lecture designed to counteract the many lectures you will have heard on the art of the short story? Many people have a compulsion to write. There is no law against it, and doing it makes them happy while they do it, and presumably it relieves them. Given editors who will remove the worst of their emissions, supply them with spelling and syntax to help shape their thoughts and their beliefs, some compulsory writers will attain a temporary fame. But when Merd, a word teacher will explain, is out of a book, the, the odor of it will always remain perceptible to anyone with sufficient olfactory sensibility. The compulsory writer should be advised not to attempt a short story. Should he make the attempt, he might well suffer the fate of the compulsive architect, which is as lonely, which is as lonely an end as that of the compulsive bassoon player. Let us not waste our time considering the sad and lonely ends of these unfortunate gentlemen. Let us continue the exercise. And he goes on like that for one of their like 12 pages. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, I think he was just kind of vibing. Yeah, he's vibing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, he gets a lot nastier in it. He like spends a lot of his time not really giving advice, but like trying to scare people off from writing in general. And he just weirdly keeps bringing up this bassoon player. And it seems like he's got a personal yeah. issue because he's like, Doug. I, I think he's just jealous that he can't play the bassoon. <laughs> it's like play the bassoon. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and that's my very scattershot facts on Hemingway, because this is the third time we've covered him. Okay. Thanks, Toby. Good facts. And that is yeah. The Snows of Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway. Three stars. Bailey, you know what's missing yeah. from our uh, podcast right now? I think it's... The uh, soon players. Bassoon players. And the answer to, did you read a book this week? Um, I did read a book this week. I read Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Miss, miss, miss. Miss, miss, miss. Uh, um, spoiler alert, I read it as well, but I will hold off until the end. Ooh. Toby, did you read it? No, but when I was doing research to find, I didn't really know anything about it. I did research. Now I really want to read it, unless you trash it. So we'll see. No spoilers. If only there was some review that would tell us if we should <laughs> read it or not. Right, well, <laughs> Celeste Ng, you might know her um, from her two successful recent novels um, called Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere. This is her most recent. Our Missing Hearts takes place dystopian totalitarian world um, where our main character Bird Gardner, um, his real name is Noah, but he goes by Bird, which is the name his mother gave him, um, is living with his father in Cambridge. His father is a librarian and former linguistics professor. And Bird's mother um, was a Chinese American woman and she has disappeared. She's left and she's now considered a dissident because in this world, basically everything that is Asian is considered bad and un-American. And the priority is to focus on like American culture. And so Bird, as a, um, as a half Asian person, is kind of in the middle and people are always looking at him like he's suspicious and he's sort of just coming of age and figuring that out. He's, I think, Andrew, is he, is he about 12, would you say? Yeah, like, he's, uh, he is like, uh, yeah, he's named as 12. So it's like he probably... Probably kind of sense these things as he was, you know, getting older. But at this point in his life, he's finally figuring out sort of what the world's like and his place in it. And the inciting incident is that Bird gets a letter in the mail from his missing mother, whose name is Margaret. And he knows it's from her because it's addressed to Bird. And she's the only one who calls him that. And it's this picture of a bunch of cats. And 
that's how it starts. And it becomes sort of a extremely loud and incredibly close type story of like a little, a younger boy trying to follow clues to find the missing parent. And at some point we do follow his mother's perspective. So part of it is Bird finding his mother. Part of it is the mother's perspective. And we hear a lot about her story. And it's just beautifully written. I think Celeste Ng is an incredible writer. She brings these mm. really strong themes too that are in every scene, but they don't beat you over the head with it. It's like very subtle and beautifully done. And there's, it kind of brings up questions as you're reading it. Like, what would I do in this situation? And one thing I thought was interesting yeah. is almost all of the characters, unless they're forced out of it, are in the position of they're not going against the government. They're doing whatever they need to do to survive, even if they don't agree with what the government's doing. You want to think that if you were living in this totalitarian world that you would be fighting against yeah. it. But... You know, we're all thinking about our own interests and trying to protect our family. And maybe we would just be going along with whatever to protect ourselves. So I thought that was a really interesting thing to follow this world and then people who are forced into positions of rebellion. Mm. There's also themes of linguistics, of poetry, um, obviously anti-Asian hate and also displaced children. That's a really big theme. And I would actually even call it a content warning. It's very beautifully and evocatively written to the point where if you have a trigger about losing custody of a child or losing a child, it's very intense. And that that's a big part of the story. One of the things that Bird is looking into and in that his mother is known for protesting is this policy where if parents are determined to be dissidents or um, somehow unsafe for their kids, even by just expressing, you know, solidarity for Asian people, then their kids can be taken away and rehomed in homes that are, quote, like safer. So part of it is like, let, let's return these kids. And the title, Our Missing Hearts, refers to people missing their children, Our Missing Hearts. Mm. It is intense. The world building is very good. The characterization is very good. And the writing is great. So I'm just going to give you a snippet so you can get a sense. On all the signs here in Chinatown, something has been painted out or taped over, or in some cases, pried away. Bird can still see the perforations where something was once nailed on, still make out shapes embossed beneath silvery gray duct tape. He notices that the street signs have been painted over, too. A flat swath of black runs under the feet of neat white letters spelling out Mulberry and Canal, like a shadow at high noon, like a dark ring beneath the white of an eye. Only when he spots one where the paint has begun to wear away, revealing a thicket of characters beneath, does he understand. He remembers his father's finger inscribing characters like these in the dust. Once all these signs bore two languages, someone, everyone has tried to make the Chinese disappear. I just think she uses the situation, the setting to introduce what's happening. You know, like instead of saying like they're against all the Chinese people and they're getting rid of Chinese characters, you're following it through the eyes of a child. So I really enjoyed this book. I found it to be once I got into it, very addictive, <laughs> compulsively readable. I read it quickly. I will say, like, as I was going, I was like, is this a five star or is it a four star? And I went back and forth. Firstly, I want to say you should definitely read it. And I hear really great things about the audiobook. Andrew, I think, might have read the audiobook, so he can say more about that. But is it a four or a five? When I first read it, I thought this is a four just because I don't know if it nailed the ending. I don't know if it got, you know, 10 out of 10 in its gymnastics landing. You know what I mean? But did that little thing where it had to step backwards a little bit? Yeah, like just a little bit back and you're like, ooh. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think at a certain point, although it was like propulsive, I had to stop myself because I felt myself getting affected by the idea of losing a child. And so it's 
Mm. I don't, but that's a personal thing. So when I first read it, I would say four. It's already been a week and it's already kind of warming up in my mind to more of a five. But if I'm sticking with my original feeling, I'm going to say four stars, but highly recommend mm. starred review. A Bailey starred review. Yeah, exactly. Someday we'll get so famous that that will be what people put on the back of their book jackets. There you go. Because <laughs> we'll, But it'll be like three years later when we finally get to the book. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we got we got to put out another round of this. We get people to send us books to review, and it's like, well, yeah, but if it gets chosen, I mean, you have to still wait for it to be chosen. Past so. Dylan. <laughs> Dylan's taking like quarter million dollar bribes on the side to be like, oh, the choosing ink can't be is. bought. <laughs> How many times did you roll the dice before you got that number? <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. I think I overwhelmingly agree with your review. I think it's a four for me. Mostly because of what you said about the ending. I just didn't quite feel like it had like earned the ending that it got to or that yeah. I really understood enough in it. Right. Yeah. And I, I did, as you suggested, uh, read the audiobook. It's narrated by Lucy Liu, um, which was a great audiobook. I do sort of wish it was mm-hmm. narrated by two narrators because there are two distinct like perspectives, but it's all mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I thought it was really powerful. The thing that stuck out to me was the plausibility of like the dystopianness. And that's, I think, what's most effective. Mm -hmm. Like, it features, like, a cable news guy railing about things and, like, getting people angry about something is, like, a central part of part of it. Um, And I'm like, yeah, well, that happens every week now. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then, like, so just to give a tiny bit more context, basically, there's a huge economic downturn that, like, destroys the American economy. And then eventually they start blaming Asia specifically China, and then like expanding to all of Asia. And they pass an act called PACT, which is like preserving American culture and traditions. And then everything is like under the big brother watch of this PACT act, which is like a heinous version of the New Deal, I suppose. Yeah. And I thought it was like very well thought out and terrifyingly plausible that that could happen in the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances. And that reminds me, Andrew, you brought something up that it's interesting that we follow Bird, who has, is born into Pact, and he grows up with it, like in the same sense that you might say, like the Pledge of Allegiance, he's like knows it backwards and forwards, and it follows the older generation who's li- who've lived through both. It's kind of got Last of Us vibes, <laughs> where they remember the before, and I think right. that's interesting as well. Right, because like his his parents are like college students when the economic downturn happens. The end of the book has an author's note from Celeste Ng who just cites all of these examples of times that children have been taken from their parents, like whether it's separated at the border, like the Native American displacement, like all of this. Um, And so, like Andrew said, it is disturbingly plausible that this could happen. Yeah. And so overall, I agree with your review. I think I'm sticking with four, but it's, yeah, a strong four that I feel like people should read it. Yay. Good. Well, Toby, if you end up reading it, let us know. I will. Do you have any facts on Miss Celeste Ng, Toby? I do. She's also a repeat customer. She's oh, also yeah. a repeat customer. I think this, this is yeah. our first episode, I think, where we have two repeat customers. We got the rest of Celeste. <laughs> the rest of Celeste. Well, I like that. Um, so Celeste Ng was born on July 30th, 1980. She's an American writer and novelist. She's released many short stories that have been published in a variety of literary journals. Her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, was released in 2014, and it won the Amazon Book of the Year Award, as well as praise from many critics. Her short story, Girls at Play, won the Pushcart Prize in 2012. It's a very big prize. And uh, was a 2015 recipient of an Alex Award. Her second novel, Little Fires Everywhere, was published in 2017. She received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2020, and her most recent novel, Our Missing Hearts, came out on October 2022. Heard of it? I remember it well. 
She thanks the Guggenheim Foundation at the end of this book, so that makes me think that she used that fellowship to write the book. As you would. We've already done some biography on Ng, so I'm just going to do this really great interview with W Magazine. And the interviewer here is Rachel Simon. And this is specifically about the book, Our Missing Hearts. Simon asks, Our Missing Hearts is a, parentheses, slightly more dystopian version of our current world. Did any particular event or moment inspire the story? Ng answers, It was more the general state of things. I started off with this idea of a mother-son story right after I'd finished my last book in October 2016. But uh, pretty soon thereafter, a lot of things started to go sideways with the 2016 election and the rise of the far right. It started to bleed into the novel. It felt like in order to investigate the questions I was asking myself, like, how do we get through this and how do you raise a child in this kind of world and give them any amount of hope for the future, I needed to create a world that was sort of our world with the volume turned up a bit. The interviewer asks, I can imagine that was a lot to handle emotionally as a writer. How did diving into those heavy, difficult topics feel? Ng answers, that's part of why the novel took such a long time. I didn't want to write it and I didn't know how to write it. It's difficult to process what's happening in real time and it's hard for me to process that on the page. But when the pandemic started and I had been working on this book on and off at that point for several years, I started seeing a lot of the anti-Asian violence that was going on and it clicked some things into place. The interviewer asks, one of the most affecting parts of the book is how numb most people have become to watching the government remove children from their parents. What do you want readers to take away from that? And Ng answers, what I always want when I'm writing is less for the readers to take something and more for them to ask themselves questions. If you know that something is happening, what would you do about it? And what are you willing to risk? Ask yourself, am I willing to take a risk if it puts myself in danger? If it puts my child in danger? Those are the questions that I struggle with myself. You'd like to think, of course, I stand up for my principles, but the calculus becomes very different if your family is in danger. I thought that answer was interesting because Bailey basically said the exact same thing about this book. I was going to say exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I've only read um, Little Fires Everywhere, but I think Celeste Ng is very forward about the fact that she wants her readers to ask themselves questions. And I think that's the most transparently I've ever seen. Like, oh, the author did what they wanted to do. If that's their goal with their books, when I'm reading them, she has achieved that goal 100% because you can't not ask yourself those questions when you're reading her stuff. It's really good. It's like everything she never told you. (laughs) <laughs> but she did tell us. <laughs> <laughs> she did tell us. She told us all the all along. And with that uh, fifth Golden Dylan joke of this episode, we're going to transfer into some more lighter questions from this interview. <laughs> what books are on your nightstand? Classic. Uh, Freaking classic question. <laughs> You go, Rachel. You want to know, though, don't you? I do. Um, Ng says, I just finished reading Hell of a Book by Jason Mott, which was fantastic. It actually made me laugh out loud, and I don't do that a lot, which makes me kind of sad for... (laughs) Um, That tracks. It is no longer on my nightstand because I immediately gave it to my husband and told him he should read it. So now he's reading it and it's on his nightstand. I do that. Sometimes I just move my books over to Dylan's nightstand. It's a very subtle (laughs) way. (laughs) That what you can say is like, I don't have shame. It's technically on his nightstand. (laughs) The interviewer asks, have you had any song or album on repeat lately? Her answer to this is wild. Aang's answer is, because I have a child who is approaching adolescence, one thing that is on repeat, not by my own will is Rick Astley. The youths are still Rick rolling. <laughs> the youths? I was like, oh my God, that's still a thing? And my son was like, wait, you used to do that? 
of all the things to pass down to the younger generation, guys, we Rick rolling. <laughs> um, and here we go. Here is the big wind up, the big final question. Do you listen to podcasts? Oh, you won't oh Celeste, what her the world answer is, is waiting. Does she it's say insane. us? It's insane. She says, the two there's this crazy podcast, these little plucky guys called the two. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> she says, the one that I picked up most recently is Ologies by Ali Ward. Every week she talks to a different person that is an expert in some field, usually the sciences, and asks them the questions that we all want to know but don't normally ask. Like with a raccoon expert, she asked, what's the deal with their tiny hands? Hey, <laughs> I want to know. That just sounds like a poorly researched podcast. That just sounds like a Seinfeld <laughs> no, it's, joke. Uh, Ologies is fantastic. I would say if you forced a gunpoint to listen to a podcast besides ours, you could do worse than Ologies. It's really good. Just as long as it's not Fresh Air by Terry Gross. <laughs> <laughs> you hate Jerry Gross. <laughs> Fresh air. <laughs> and that's uh, that's what I got on Celeste Ng today. I'm sure she'll be back because we're probably going to read her next book, too. I yeah. heard that her next book is going to be called Never Going to Give You Up. <laughs> <laughs> it's called I. I heard you should click the link in our description of this episode to find out what her next book is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Four stars, but solid four starred review. Solid. Andrew, do you have any, you know, solid starred games for us? I do have a game. Ooh. Would you like to play it? Yes. Yes, please. So, what's one thing everybody thinks they know about Ernest Hemingway? I think we might have debunked this in the past. But, Bailey, what do you think you know about Ernest Hemingway? He can write a story in six words. Ah, that's exactly what I teed you up to say, and you're wrong. Um, oh. So while that story is commonly attributed to Ernest Hemingway, there's no record of him actually writing it. In fact, a version of it appears earlier in 1917 before he was actively writing. Was it Celesting? The version of the story, initially titled Little Shoes Never Worn, uh, was published in 1917 by William R. Kane. The story as it now is explained to us as like in popular culture is that Hemingway was challenged to write a six word story and wrote for sale, baby shoes never worn. Tells you a lot big story you can infer a lot of things from it anywho mm. turns out was not him i can understand why the story started anywho we're going to celebrate everybody learning that the story was not written by hemingway by playing a game in which we sort of pretend it was <laughs> can we play a game called bailey shames herself for having a previous lesson that she taught about how hemingway wrote that it's fine what? It's a, really well yeah it's fine you call it oh, short no. story Hemingway never wrote. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. So, Dylan, I'd love for you to play too. Yay! So, this is Uh-oh. a game that's going to rely on your creativity as individuals okay. to create the oh, best good. short story possible. <laughs> okay. I've decided to create some scenarios that are maybe a little more mundane, maybe a little more uh, quotidian for folks that I want a six-word mm-hmm. story from each of you for. They're sort of okay. little mm-hmm. disappointments everywhere um, that you might run into in your life. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready? Yes. All right. So the first one is you go to Chipotle, you take a bite of your burrito, it splits open. So burrito oh. splitting open is the prompt of your of your thing. So this is going to be a six word short story that we write ourselves. That you write yourselves. And whoever has the best short story will win a point. Okay. And my undying respect. Okay. I'm ready. All right, Toby. Little beans, never eaten. Going stale. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Powerful. Okay. Um, make sure make sure it's six words, man. Okay. I can hear you count. Okay, ready? Yeah. <clears throat> Did you know guac is extra? It's <laughs> 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 a beautiful story. Maybe it doesn't quite nope, evoke that the does, burrito is lost, but I do love it. it. <laughs> it's underneath the surface, iceberg lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Dylan? Do you have one? A loose tortilla, now a bowl. Ooh. Ooh, now a bowl. Oh, 
Okay, I'm going to give that point to Dylan. Uh Uh-huh. Second, I hate it when Dylan plays. Second place to Toby, <laughs> third place to Bailey. All very good. What? Bailey, yours was wonderful. However, I did not know that a burrito had been lost along the way. Your, your iceberg was all the way under the water. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Not having enough coins for the parking meter after you've parked. Are there no credit card readers? No, oh, that's good. Powerful. Wallet empty, gum and card reader. Okay, similar, similar, but... That's good. What's one more ticket anyway, mom? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, defiance in that one. <sighs> I got to say, Bailey and Dylan's are too similar. So this one's going to Toby because I like the defiance, the standing up in the face yeah. of adversity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good job, Toby. I was also trying to imply that it was my mom who was going to get the parking ticket. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was clear. Oh, okay, good, good. That iceberg was a little bit too high above the water. Got it. I know, we got it. <laughs> one point for Dylan, one point for Toby. Here comes round three. Dropping an ice cream cone on your new shoes. So it's doubly painful here. You got to think of two two parts of it. All right. You ready? Paolo Nutini, eat your heart out. What? Wow. What? That's a deep cut. I don't understand. I don't get it. He sang that new shoes song that was popular maybe 12 years ago. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. A certain segment of the population knows exactly who Paolo Nutini is. Okay. Mine is Pete the cat keeps it groovy. You're welcome. What? Okay, so we're getting weirder here. <laughs> so, fr- so fresh and clean, now neither. Ooh. Mm. I mean, the clear winner here is the reference I understood, which was just a real story. So Dylan gets the point. <laughs> <laughs> so here's how it turns out. Dylan has two points. If he gets a third, he's definitely the winner. Thinking of the perfect thing to say to a rude person, 30 minutes too late. Okay, I'm ready. So yeah, and smell my butt. excellent top that guys i don't know if you will wake up 3 a.m burn activated (laughs) (laughs) nice like a transformer i love it yep Mm -hmm. win argument against people in shower Mm, good. I mean, D- Toby won here, guys. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Child's play. I hate to hate to do this to you, Bailey, but I have one left and two people on two points and you on zero points. So, can I just participate? Okay, you can well, participate, but I'm probably going to pick a winner out of the other two so that we actually have a winner. All right, last one. We will see you, jerk. <laughs> putting, <laughs> putting salt in something instead of sugar. This could be anything. Could be a baking project. Could be your coffee. And this is for all the freaking marbles. American girl... American girl Samantha Parkington did it first. Seven stories, seven words. Okay, so Bailey is out. <laughs> yep. Thank you. <laughs> Bailey has disqualified herself. <laughs> Birthday cake, now terrible French fries. <laughs> well, that's good. I de iced the cupcakes. <laughs> nice. I don't think that's enough words. <laughs> you can be more economical. De iced. De iced. Yeah, well, there was a little, the hyphen. Anyway, shut up. Okay. No, good. All right. No, no, no. Yeah. And the, so smell my butt. This is the story. I de-iced the cupcakes. Anyway, shut up. <laughs> All right. So the winner is Dylan. Hey. He got the last one there. Well done. Though I do Blue. think, yeah, and smell my butt is the best story we saw. So yeah. <laughs> Toby wins the, the uh, secondary prize of most valuable story. <laughs> Mm, thank you, thank you. Dylan wins despite Andrew's best efforts. Ooh. <laughs> wow! Well, that was a that was a fun game, though. It's like I came magna cum laude, and like I just can't even. That's not worth anything. Wow! Call back. 
callback burn. Thank you for the game, Andrew. That was really fun, even though I did not win. Yeah, great game. Yeah. Go. And now everyone remember, Hemingway didn't write that story. Great. Great. Mm. <laughs> well, now's the time in the podcast where Dylan gets to shine. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. I have no idea what you're going to pick, Dill. Well. That's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> Well, Andrew, we were talking this morning about all the gnarly weather and everything and like, you know, how everyone's going to be hitting the beach soon, uh, catching the breaks and everything. Yeah, brah. We're all going to hit the beach and read number 19, The Waves by Virginia Woolf. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was such a a journey there. Um, Okay, we're going for another repeat. We're going to the waves. We're going to Wolf Town, to the Wolf Den. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited. Nice. What about me? Well, wouldn't you like to know, Bailey? Wife. Okay. <laughs> wouldn't you want to know what I'm keeping from you? Yeah. Hmm. Like my number 24, The Husband's Secret by Leanne Moriarty. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who is she? Who is she? <laughs> this is fun. This is one I definitely got for free somewhere by the author of Big Little Lies. And, you know, I was mm. like... Must be fun. So cool. All right. The husband's secret. Have you read any of hers besides, have you read any of hers at all? No. Oh, okay. I really enjoyed Big Little Lies, the show. So. All right. Well, that means next week on the podcast, I'll be reading The Husband's Secrets by Leanne Moriarty and Toby is reading Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. Uh-huh. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you're deep in the savanna on your giant wild game hunt um, and the, the impulse strikes you to finally get around to reviewing some of the podcasts you love, please pull out your device, rate us five stars. You know, it really helps us spread awareness of the show. It makes us feel good. If you really want to do your part, put down your rifle and write us a, a review as well. Tell us how much you love us means a lot to us. (laughs) Also, if you find yourself either a boxer in the last fight of his career, uh, (laughs) recovering in an Italian hospital in the First World War, or any other brave, true, and noble place, (laughs) lean to the person next to you and say, hey, heard of podcasts? Have I got the one for you? So tell a friend, (laughs) tell your family. Uh, Word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. and We'd really appreciate it. What we'd like you to do Mm, is go to a bar, mm. be the last one there, and tell the bartender. (laughs) And tell the two waiters who are talking about you, about the podcast (laughs) you're listening to. Perfect. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.